Welcome. I'm Michael Krasny, and I welcome you to this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. And it's a pleasure to be talking to Nipun Mehta during this episode. Uh, Nipun Mehta, let me say by way of introduction, is the founder of something called Service Space, which was originally called Charity Focus. And it's described as an incubator of projects working at the intersection of volunteerism, technology, and the gift economy. It began as an experiment of four friends in Silicon Valley and is now a global ecosystem. It has probably about a million members. We'll talk about the membership with them and what that means. It's delivered millions of dollars in service at no cost. Nipun Mehta received a number of awards, including the Jefferson Award for Public Service and the President's Volunteer Service Award. And he's on the advisory boards of the Siva Foundation, the Dalai Lama Foundation, the Greater Good Science Center, as well as having served on President Barack Obama's advisory board on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. And welcome, Nipun. So glad to have you with us. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Well, we're going to talk about a lot of things, but particularly about gratitude, because this is going to be heard by a wider audience not our select audience who is with us, and I'm thanking all of you who are being with us. I'll express that gratitude to all of you um, because this will be heard by a larger audience on the week of Thanksgiving next week, and I think it's important whether you celebrate it as Thanksgiving or Indigenous Day to give deference to gratitude and to consider what gratitude means and to think about being thankful and what are we thankful for. Uh, and let me go back first, though, to your beginnings, because you started, uh, I think, in a very modest way. You were building websites uh, for free. <laughs> yeah, that's true. In in the late 1990s, you know, just coming out of college, not even fully out of college, but uh, we looked at the whole dot-com sort of context and said, hey, you know, uh, how can we use this for good? How can we actually serve society with these new innovative, um, you know, emergent forces that are uh, that are showing up in our lives. And so we went to a homeless shelter and we literally told them, we said, uh, how can we help? What can we do? We didn't actually have a clear idea of what we were going to do. We, like, oh, let's build a website. But then as we went there, we were like, yeah, let's, uh, you know, can we can we support you uh, with, with building a website? And it was so powerful, not just for the out, outcome uh, of what happened uh, and how the homeless shelter benefited, but actually what happened within us. You know, and the process of giving itself and the gratitude, as you were saying, that emerges from that process as well. So, the websites were for gift type of. Uh, operations, right? That we're doing things for. Oh, sure. yeah, absolutely. We we didn't we didn't have an organization plan. We weren't thinking that there's going to be a movement. We weren't thinking scale. We weren't thinking fundraise. We just wanted to practice giving. You know, it's sort of like a lemonade stand in a way, <laughs> except yeah. not charging. Uh, yeah, not charging. Yeah, which in many people's minds is remarkable in itself. Uh, they would say, "Why do that? Why give?" And you said, "Because of what it did for you internally as well." Yeah, yeah. yeah. and and that that was it. I think the orient for us in the giving uh, process was not just external, it was also what was happening to us. So we actually felt grateful. You almost felt a little bit like, oh, I should be thanking you for giving me the opportunity to give. Because I think if we really tune in, and now there's so much neuroscience around it too, that, you know, your endorphins get released, dopamine gets released, and, you know, serotonin, oxytocin, any small act of kindness does that. And so you're like, wow, okay, there's an external ripple effect to kindness, um, to service, but there's also an internal ripple effect. And I think all too often we underestimate the internal ripple effect. Well, I've seen some of these studies and they're pretty convincing. People do when they feel good about doing something for other people, feel not only better about themselves, but can be even healthier and, and stronger and and yet there are those people who don't necessarily feel good about doing good. Um, and so the question sometimes comes down to, and we'll get into gratitude, but why do good? Why, particularly for those people who don't feel good inside about it or don't feel like they're doing something spiritual or you know, doing a mitzvah or whatever yeah. way you want to describe it, yeah. why do it? Um, I, so, you know, my approach to that, I think you can have an, an intellectual argument, but intellectual arguments around giving only go so far. So my approach to it is just go experiment, see how you feel. Like, that's what I do with kids. I was at a, I was at a small, uh, school, uh, maybe there were some college kids there, and at the end they gave me a bouquet of flowers. 
And I was like, and they gave me multiple bouquets of flowers. And so I was like, what am I going to do with all these? So I opened them up and I told everyone I was talking about kindness and service. I said, well, I, I'm going to give one to each one of you and you go and thank somebody in the school, whether it's the you know, kitchen staff or your teacher, your fellow worker, the janitor, doesn't matter who, just go and you know, give a, a flower and say something nice. And so all these kids lined up. We ran out of flowers. They brought us more flowers. And by the time I got to the last one, there was a person that came at the end. She comes up to me, uh, this young woman, and she says, uh, you know, that was really powerful. Can I get another flower? She'd already given her flower, and she saw that it did something in her that was meaningful for her. So the way I approach it, it's like, why be good? I would say, take it as an experiment. You know, we do so many things. Why do you go to a certain movie? You know, because somebody recommended it. So try it. I say, experiment and see where you want to go. Now, if you're very heady and you want neuroscience of it, go for it. You know, but I think for me, the approach is my my uh, argument to you would be experiment. If it works for you, uh, you'll want to keep it. Yeah, up. it's all trial and error. And you you operate under the assumption gratitude begets gratitude. As in the story you told, there's another story that you tell about. There are a couple of pilgrimages that are associated with your work, uh, one personally that maybe we can talk about, but I'm thinking about the one where land was given up. Can you talk about that? Oh, yeah. This is this is Gandhi's successor in India. He's sort of a big hero uh, in, in Indian history, and he was a person of impeccable character. His name was Vinoba Bhave. And Vinoba would go city to city, and this is post-independence in India. Uh, he would go village to village, city to city, and he would ask rich landowners. Uh, there was a lot of inequality in the country, particularly around land. And he would go to rich landowners and he says, look, if you have five kids, what would you do? Uh, when you passed away with all your land. And, and he, they said, well, I would split it up with uh, among, the, among those five. And so then he would say, would you adopt me as your sixth son? And they would be, he, was, he was a person of such incredible character um, and love and compassion. And you're just like, oh, man, it would be an honor to adopt you as a sixth son. So he says, well, one-sixth of your land, if you were to give me, I don't want it myself. Why don't you give it to somebody else in your own village? And so what he did is he went village to village having people contribute land voluntarily out of the goodness of their hearts, moved by love, and they would just offer it. And five million acres of this land uh, was, uh, you know, was shared in this way, was gifted. And five million acres, I mean, that's larger than entire countries, right? Like that's, that's almost the size of Israel, bigger than I think Ireland, Kuwait, so many countries. It almost sounds like a fairy tale, though, to most of us. Yeah. Or, and I, maybe a little bit too synchronistic with Socialism? Is that the kind of the thing you've heard? Well, I, I mean, you know, a, a lot of people would have these isms associated with this, but I think where it's different is that, you know, I think isms have a sense of coercion in them, no matter which ism it is. And this is pure voluntary. Right. There's no one saying, if you don't do this, this is going to happen. Right. There's, there's no like, you know, a governance apparatus. It's purely people moved by love, moved by relationship, moved by connection. Uh, and I think when you do that, um, I, I think I, I, I don't think we trust that process enough. And I think if we do, we would be surprised how far it can go. Oh, we're told we can move mountains, right? By faith and by compassion and by love and all of those kinds of things. But you're also dealing with, um, and I'm sure you've heard this before, with a lot of selfish people. A lot of people who say, I'm number one. You know, what do I care about being good or grateful or compassionate or kind or any of those kinds of things? Yeah. And I, I think we have an idea that we can move mountains with love and compassion. Uh, but I think we also have very, lots of counter ideas that are fed to us by the media all the time that, you know, people are fundamentally selfish and they aim to maximize their own interests. And, you know, I think I read some research in Pew, 72 percent of the kids uh, in this gen in this next gen millennials and Gen Z think um, that, yeah, it's only it's it's, of course, to be expected that people are going to, you know, take care of themselves first. Um, and I'm not so sure that's the only narrative in town, you know. Um, Most definitely not the only narrative in town. <laughs> but you make the link, and it's, I think, an important link between generosity and gratitude. And so let's talk about how those two are bound together as you see it. 
I, I think if we have gratitude in our hearts, I, I think we can start to even just look at our lives and, and say, wow, nine months of a gift from our mothers, right? That was not transactional. That was a gift. And we are nestled in so many gifts that we can't pay back. And so if we are actually mindful of all these gifts that come to our way that we are endowed with, then you can then you naturally have a sense of gratitude and you say, well, if I can't pay back, can I pay forward? And I, th I think as you tap into that pay-forward spirit, you realize that even as you're paying forward, wanting nothing in return, you still get a ton in return. When you say pay back and pay forward, does that mean there's a debt for feeling gratitude? That you owe something? You have it, an obligation? It's not an obligation. I think if you had direct reciprocity, that you give me something and I owe you something, then I think there would, that would be more of an obligation. This is more an overflowing of your gratitude where you're like, wow, I'm just grateful for life. It's not direct reciprocity where I say, you gave to me and so I owe you this back. It's more to just life in general. And it's not it's like- It's not a quid pro quo. It's not a quid pro quo for no. sure. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the, the idea of gratitude especially around Thanksgiving time, is vital, I think, and in many people's minds and hearts, very important. But there is kind of a hierarchy of gratitude. You're talking, I mean, you can be grateful for just the breath of life. You can be grateful for nature. You can be grateful for the small things and grateful for family and abundance and the fact that we're not living uh, in, in terrible uh, impoverishment, all of these kinds of things. How do you set up a kind of, for lack of a better word, hierarchy of gratitude or triage of gratitude <laughs> you 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 could you could look at it as uh, you could associate different amounts of gratitude for different you know things in your life like i'm very grateful for my wife in in a very dif different way than i would be grateful for my breath in a very different way than i'm grateful for all those people i was just reading a poem that it's kind of amazing that you're you know you're trying to you, let's say you're in a seat in an auditorium and you have to get up and everybody spontaneously tucks their, you know, feet in. And you're grateful for that, too, you know, that people respond in that way. Um, so I don't know if there's a need to, uh, you know, I, hierarchicalize, um, you know, in, in a linear sort of a way. I think it stems from the same root uh, in us, where you are grateful for things that where you are receiving something that perhaps you don't know the full cause, cause of that you're like, wow, how do these circumstances align? How did I have the parents that I do? You know, I don't know. And when I when you tap into that not knowing, I think it stems, uh, you know, it, it gives birth uh, to a deeper kind of uh, feeling. And I think that's gratitude. And from that base of gratitude, I think generosity is only natural. So gratitude for the gifts that you get that you don't understand their source. That would be on a higher plane of gratitude. I think that's what you're saying, because if you want to know, what should I be grateful for? Uh, maybe, I mean, some people are grateful for success. They're grateful for material things, you know, as opposed to what I think your philosophy is more bound to, which is grateful for just life itself and, you know, the kind of abundance that one can have in life. Yeah. Well, if, if you draw the through line, even the smallest thing you're grateful for, if you start to unpack it, underneath it is like, there are so many causes underneath that. And underneath that, there's so many causes. And you're like, wow. At some point, you just kind of have to fall on your knees and just be in, in humble reverence for this thing called life. I mean, it takes every, it takes all of eternity to create this moment, right? If you really think about it. If my grandfather or grandmother had slipped on a banana appeal and uh, and taken one left turn a right turn this way i may not be here in the same way and you may not be here so there's a kind of sense of uh any small thing we're grateful for and then to look peel the layers and as you peel the layers the gratitude only deepens because you can't even name all the things that have uh led to that moment yeah in fact some of what one feels gratitude or should feel gratitude toward is nameless it's maybe even unknowable but I'm struck by, again, that sense of giving back, which people often talk about. I'm so grateful I want to give back for all the gifts that I have or for all of the lo love that I have in my life or the privilege or any of those kinds of things. And it seems to me to be a humbling process and a good sense of having decency and all the rest of that, being kindness, uh, just generally kind and generous of spirit, maybe even for its own sake. Do you need the bulwark, though, of faith behind that? Is that... Uh, 
Is that an you, you know, you, you, you used an interesting word, unknowable, and I, I really like that because I think there's the known and you can carry, you can have a relationship to the unknown with a heavy anchoring in the known that, oh, this is known and this is unknown, but I have so much faith in my capacity to know things and to, you know, and to, and, and to conquer it that I'm now going to approach this unknown and it's just a matter of taking classes and reading books and engaging with the right people and, I'm, I, and I, can, I got this. And I think there's the known and then the unknown and then the unknowable. And I think our relationship to the unknowable is actually very critical. Now, for some people, it's faith. For some people, it's just life. For some people, maybe they don't even need an intellectual framework. Like, they just operate from this space. But I think the deeper our relationship to the unknowable, the, the deeper our reverence and gratitude for life. And the deeper our gratitude, the more we will engage with others uh, in, in a way that is generous, in a way that gives them the benefit of the doubt, in a way that's curious, in a way that's embracing. And what do you say to, uh, I mean, because this does get us in deep into the realm of philosophy, to uh, those who give and wind up being thwarted or wind up being obstructed or... Uh, there's no gratitude back, you know, because that's often a problem for people. They, they're grateful and they're giving of themselves and they don't get anything back or they get a block or a wall or they get ingratitude, you know, yeah. <laughs> which is maybe more. Uh, and they know it. It's yeah, not something that's unknown. They know it and they feel it. Yeah. And sometimes uh, the result is rancor and enmity and all kinds of maybe toxic feelings that you don't want to welcome into your inner life. But that's the reality of what we deal with. Oh, ab absolutely. I mean, you, you, you do a kind act for somebody and somebody rejects it, makes you feel worse off. You know, and it happened to one of my friends. She was like, she was very inspired after one of these talks. And, and she goes to a gas station and she's like, I'm going to pay for your gas. And this woman's like, I don't want your money. And she was like, oh, Nipun, you said it was going to feel good. It feels terrible. <laughs> and I was like, well, you kind of got to build a context before you can just go out and do it, you know. But I think as, as you look deeper into, you know, into what anyone does and how you respond, if you're engaged in direct reciprocity, which is I do this, what am I getting in return? Even if you're looking for the feel good sort of hormones in your body, you know, um, that's you can go deeper than that, right? So I think there's direct reciprocity. Then there is indirect reciprocity, where I do something for someone else, they do something for somebody else, and over time the circle, you know, what goes around comes around, right? Like it's a daisy chain. It's a daisy chain. But I think there's something beyond that, which is infinite reciprocity, which is this idea that I'm going to plant a seed. And even if I'm not around, to see the seed turn into a tree, to see its fruits, and to see the young child sitting under a tree, plucking, you know, benefiting, being nourished by, uh, by its fruits, by its harvest, um, I'm good with that. And, and I think that's when you really start to get into principled things. So even if somebody is ungrateful or somebody rejects you or somebody takes advantage of you, you still say in your heart, you're saying, hey, this direct reciprocity didn't quite work out the way I thought it was going to. You know, this is not the holiday spirit, but it, I planted a seed and that seed is principled and it's backed by nature. And I, you know, I trust in the unknowable uh, possibility of compassion and love. And, and, and I think if we approach it that way, then we're a lot more resilient. But you can, in fact, uh, experience this phenomenon of compassion fatigue, which we spoke of uh, recently, you and I, uh, in a private conversation. Um, what do you tell people who experience that or complain about that? Well, I think as you give, you realize that there are three states, and this is backed by neuroscience too. There's three kinds of internal states that you can give from. One is sympathy. I have, you don't have. Uh, a deeper way of giving is empathy, where, okay, I feel your pain, and then there's compassion. And I think we conflate empathy and uh, compassion. But actually, neuroscience tells us that these are very three distinct neural networks that arise in you. So they can tell you the difference when I'm doing something. Is it from sympathy, empathy, or compassion? Typically, we don't have the awareness um, to know this ourselves. But I think compa compassion fatigue is a, is a misnomer. I would say empathy fatigue is more accurate. 
if I start to feel all your pain, and this is very common with nurses and teachers and so many different professions, where you have such empathetic people where they don't know, they're feeling the pain that the other person is feeling. And when you do that, you invariably, it leads to burnout. Um, But compassion is actually a regenerative source. So there is a sense of fatigue, but I think when you feel that fatigue, I think it's an invitation to deepen our journey from empathy to compassion, or if we're in sympathy mode, to go from sympathy to empathy. To, to well, you talk about uh, IQ, EQ, and CQ, right? Uh, I mean, we know what IQ is and EQ, emotional, quote, but CQ, compassion. Uh, let, let me, uh, by the way, we're talking in the important uh, meta and We've got lots of people with questions and uh, comments, and we do want to hear from you. So let's begin with, uh, and, and thank you for your involvement here. Let's begin with Hershed Trevetti, who's in Central Florida, who says, Hi, your surname conjures up a lot of various questions, but for us, could you perhaps explain the cultural aspects of your surname, please? <laughs> well, I uh, so I'm I'm from India. I was I was born in India. Uh, I I grew up here, but I have deep roots uh, in India. And and there's a culture in India. There's a great culture of hospitality. Um, we have this phrase Vasudeva Kutumbakam, the whole world is my family. Uh, there's a common prayer that everyone says Atithi Devo Baba, the guest is God. Um, and that notion, and, and my wife and I went on a walking pilgrimage uh, across India where we experienced this. We would walk. We had access to very little resources. We didn't have any food uh, or a place to stay, and people would give uh, to us, and people who sometimes had very little. And you realize that, wow, you know, and, and as we were walking, we ended up walking a thousand kilometers. As we were walking, you see that those who have the least actually are very, very generous, are very, very kind. And there have actually been studies about that in the United States. People who live in Appalachia who are poor and sometimes don't even know if they're going to put food on the table will nevertheless be more generous than you know people who have great abundance and all of that. But again, let's just take, because I'm sure you probably asked this on a number of occasions, uh, I'll use that word hierarchy, but advisedly again. There are people who say, if you want to be compassionate, you want to give and be generous, it should start at home. You should not necessarily go to the third world. It should be with America itself. Or in India, for example, the, there's, there's supposedly not a caste system anymore, but in some ways that's arguable. Um, it's kind of a de facto caste system. But the idea of those who are the outcasts should be most generous, one should be most generous toward and so forth. In other words, that decision of who do you give to becomes a very important one and a difficult one, vexing for many people. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think we, we are so conditioned with the opportunity cost algorithms in our minds uh, that we're constantly doing that with other people. It's hard to be unconditional in our giving. Uh, so I think, I think you start with wherever your heart's moved, you know. And, but as you do that, if we pay attention to what's going on inside of us, we realize that, wow, actually more than what I did for the other person, it transformed me. And if you use that algorithm, then over time you get out of this opportunity cost analysis and you say, look, I'm going to be kind to my neighbor. I'm going to be kind to that stranger I see on the street. I'm going to be kind to my family members at the Thanksgiving dinner. I'm going to be kind to everybody, not so much because of what they're doing for me, but because this is who I am. Even if my family members uh, politically are completely completely on the opposite yeah, side of the fence for right. me. Yeah. We've all experienced that, you know. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I think, I, I think that becomes a, a much stronger way to sort of respond um, than to start to do this cost-benefit analysis and say, "Hey, is this worth it? Is this not?" You know, and and I, I, I think, uh, you know, ultimately, we don't really know who's everyone. In some sense, is going through a hard time. So, can you be virtually grateful? Can you be virtually generous? I mean, we live in a social. Uh, media world. We live in a world where everything now is on the internet and uh, especially during the pandemic when everything was Zoomed and so forth. Yeah. So like I'm looking at you now and we're in sync and we're making eye contact and everything. It's not virtual. It's real. Yeah. I mean, I think it's real. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe everything is illusion like a lot of Hindu uh, and Buddhist traditions tell us. Maya, but um, it feels real. And that authenticity as opposed to what we experience in terms of the internet, yeah. is a vast difference. Isn't yeah, it? I, I I totally agree. I think internet reduces content in our context into really small amount of content. 
Um, and I think in person we have a much more multi-dimensional connection. But that doesn't mean it's not possible. Um, so I, I, I think it's it's still possible. I think even if you're remote, you know, my mom always seems to know if I get sick in another part of the world, you know. And so that's not in person, but you know, there there's perhaps something uh, something deeper there. Um, so I would say that we can all uh, explore uh, different ways. You know, as Rumi would say, a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Very specific question from James Babbitt in San Diego. Thanks for the question, James. We're grateful for these questions, by the way. Um, he says, please discuss the Awaken circles in service space and our practices to embrace uncertainty. You may have to educate me and some of the others on this. <laughs> well, so Awaken circles, it's actually a fascinating it's awaken. story. Awaken. I read it literally. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, no, Awaken circles are, so it, it's kind of a pun on Awaken. something Indian, Awaken. <laughs> Uh, it's A-W-A-K-I-N. So yeah, it's a, it it's now, a pun yeah. on kin. So you awaken, but you awaken together. So this is like, you know, uh, maybe mid-90s that a uh, few of us at my parents' home in Santa Clara uh, said that we want to come together uh, in a circle and we're just going to sit in silence for an hour. And second hour, we'll just share our aha moments from the week. And in the third hour, uh, my mom said, "Hey, I got to cook for you anyway. So uh, whoever comes, I'll feed. You know, I'll, I will feed them." And the only thing we did was left the door open instead of closed. And quite literally, like my mom and dad would have fed over the last twenty-three years up to the pandemic, maybe fifty thousand people in our own home. And it became like this incredible thing. It's like an Indian rickshaw somehow. All these 50, 60 people we would uh, fit into our living room every single Wednesday for 23 straight years. Um, and, and we would come together. And it's remarkable to just sit with each other um, in silence. Like usually when we meet people, we meet through... A, a certain kind of noise, you know, a certain kind of identity, a certain kind of like, I want to do this, you want to do this. But it's so powerful to know that, oh, wow, the first time we were together for an hour, we were in silence and there's something there. And then in the second hour, it's a circle of sharing and no one is giving like a talk, right? There's no teacher. You're just listening. And initially in the circle, you're thinking, oh, you know, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? As soon as I get the mic, I want to sound really great and cool and, you know, impressive. And after a while, like you sit, and I've sat in thousands of these circles, right? And now it's all over the world. Um, and you're just like, oh, wait, Nipun, you made it about you when 99% of the time your job was to listen. But that 1% that was about you speaking was so overestimated, was so prominent in your mind that you turned this whole thing and turned it into a me experience instead of a we experience. And no one's telling you all this. It's like organically understood. And then you have a meal and there's no donation box, nothing. And like these, or you know, everyday folks in my parents and me too, we would spend the whole Wednesday like cooking all this stuff at home and it's just in the offered in the spirit of gratitude. And then people will go to my parents and say, oh, thank you, uncle. Thank you, auntie, for this incredible uh, meal, for this incredible evening. And my parents would look at them and say, no, thank you for the opportunity to be of service. And most people think that this is like, you know, lip service, right? As in it sounds good. But actually, if you do it for 23 straight years like this, you would realize, and what happened in the pandemic? My parents, you know, being elders, they didn't go out. They never had to order anything online because all these people would come in and would text them and say, auntie, what do you need? Uncle, what do you need? You have fed so many people. You have fed me so many times. This is the least I can do. And there was this, you know, in all likelihood, they would have never experienced this in their life. But because of the pandemic, they experienced it. And all these people leaving such abundance at on our porch every single day. My parents never for like, I think a year and a half had to even order anything online because of just the love that's there in the community. And the kinship. kinship. I mean, again, the emphasis calling aunt and uncle and even using those words. I mean, people will call one another brothers and sisters, and it's the same kind of feeling of community and kinship that I think can be fostered and can be certainly inspired. Uh, and, and And these are strangers, Michael. Like, these are people who don't know each other. These are people we don't know every week. All these people are coming in. But I'll bet it's a self-selective process to some extent. I mean, you've got good people. You've got decent people. You've got probably kind people. 
You don't. I mean, have you? Well, you have people who I, I I don't know, decent, good, or kind. Hopefully, yeah. But uh, yeah. but I I think it's people who are interested in meditation, which is silence. People who are interested in listening, not just speaking, which is a circle of sharing. People who are interested in this infinite reciprocity with the meal, because which is a select group to some extent, right? But but you might be surprised, actually. We, like, we've had people who are from all walks of life. Like, a lot of the founders of Silicon Valley companies have been there. A lot of everyday people, a lot of people who have, I, I don't know, a lot. We don't profile these people, you know, but I know at least one person who spent 30 years at San Quentin, and he was there. Um, and, and you know, you no one is asking for your bio when you come in. There's been a billion, there's been ample billionaires, and when you come in the circle, I'm Nippon, and this was my aha moment of the week. And there's a humanizing element to that. Um, and Are you Uncle Nippon, too? I, <laughs> no. I mean, I, I used to have hair once upon a time, Michael, so... <laughs> Let me go to uh, New Mexico, and uh, we'll uh, take a question from Talak Lopez-Waterman. Says the organism of the human species as a whole, processing or regressing? Boy, there's a question to wrestle with with your philosophical mind. Uh, uh, you know, I think Martin Luther King Jr. said uh, the the arc of uh, you know the moral arc of the universe uh, is is. Toward bends justice. towards justice, yeah. um, and, but it's long, right? This is not the exact quote, but something of that sort. And I would say, I would add and maybe build on that, and I would say it's a long arc uh, and it bends towards compassion. Uh, but I think if we look at a short-term arc, it's very hard to it's very hard to imagine how it's bending towards compassion and connection. Uh, so why the faith in the long-term arc, especially when we don't even know how long this planet is going to endure? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I tend to look at life as not just human-centric. Uh, I tend to look at life in all its myriad forms. And so if you include nature uh, in that expression of life, um, it's, you know, I don't know how long humans will be able to coexist. It may just be the cockroaches, you know. <laughs> it could be the cockroaches. Us, yeah. It could be that we regenerate. It could be, there are so many different scenarios. Uh, so I, I don't, you know, I don't know, but I think in my mind and my heart, I have an infinite enough timeline. There was a, a great book by James P. Kars, you might uh, know of it, Finite and Infinite Games. Um, this is many decades ago, and the cover of it summed it all up. You know, he says finite games are played where uh, in finite you play finite games for the purpose of winning. Like there's winners and losers. An infinite game is played for the purpose of continuing the play. And I think that th my faith in compassion, uh, kindness, joy um, it comes from having like when I lose that faith. I ask myself, am I playing a finite game? Can I play a more infinite game? And the more infinite game that I expand into, the more my uh, the mo the more faith I have that yeah hey can you conceive of the infinite? Can you even grasp that or conceptualize that? I I don't think so, but I think we can do a more we can do it progressively. So I don't think it's a binary finite and infinite, but I think there's a more it, it's a path incremental. Of, it, it's a path of it's a progressive path. Yeah, yeah, where you say I'm at this point, and some of my life is finite, where I I feel like winning, and there's losers. It comes at the at, that's the cost. Is that for every tennis match you win, there's a loser. And at some, I used to play a lot of tennis. So. Hey, you wanted to be a pro. Yeah. You also wanted to be a Himalayan yogi, yogi at one point, right? <laughs> yeah, I did. That's yeah. true. Um, but but when you do that, you realize that you know if you win a close match, you're like, yes, I really scored. And at some point, you lose a close match, and then you're like, oh, that's how that other guy would have felt, you know. And so if my win comes at a cost of making somebody else experience a loss in that way. I, it's, I, you know, it, it makes me at least question that can I play a more infinite game? And yeah, the absolute infinite may be hard to intellectually comprehend, but if I'm at point B, can I go to point C? And if I'm at M, can I go to N? You got to worry about the referees too, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about McEnroe and those people would throw their... Rackets right. and disgust and, and uh, frustration and so forth. That, it was like something ruling over them that they couldn't control, and they wanted to be in control. And there's a lesson in that, too, I think. Uh, we've got lots of questions and lots of people want it. This is Kristen Osterkamp, who's with us from Germany, and uh, she wants to know, 
How could the karma kitchen principles and pay it forward be lived by a global, technically oriented community? Again, you're going to have to edu educate yeah. us here and me. Yeah. Well, this is great. Your your audience is very, uh, very tuned in. Karma Kitchen, we started it as, as an experiment. So we said, okay, we can be we can do small acts of kindness for each other, but what happens if you create a context where people are paying forward for each other? Right. So we, we took over a restaurant just for one evening and we said, you will walk into this restaurant, your meal is a gift. Now it's not free, but someone before you has paid for you and you are trusted to pay forward for people after you. Would people be selfish and just say, hey, this is, I, you know, I got a free meal, that's it, I don't want to pay forward? Or would they be moved by love? And these are not the people, these are like just restaurant-going people. They walk in, most of them have never had such an experience. Um, and you're like, wow. Like, this is gratitude for us doing more gratitude. Pass it on. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So will people respond to, does gratitude actually beget more gratitude? Now, not as like some research study, right? This is like concrete, like you're walking into a restaurant and you're feeling into this. And it turns out people do. And UC Berkeley came to study it and they under academic scrutiny, widely, uh, you know, widely cited paper. The title of this paper was paying more when paying for others. Now, it doesn't mean your Lexus car dealership is going to work this way, right? But I think a lot of things in society can actually don't have to be boxed into a transactional framework, right? Like the relationship you might have with a loved one, you're not saying, oh, I did so many dishes, like you should take out the trash, right? Like you can actually be in a much more spacious uh, relationship. You can be in a much more uh, broader sense, you hold a much more broader sense of reciprocity. It's challenging though. I mean, particularly because the world seems to be so transactional. The president of the United States, past president, I'm thinking about Donald J. Trump, you know, uh, people have said both favorably and unfavorably, everything he does is transactional. That's how he operates. And one could say that's how many people operate because of Trump or in addition to Trump or, you know, this is a leader of the free world um, who both inspired some mimicking as well as deep enmity, um, all kinds of emotions. But you hear this argument all the time that the world is a very transactional place. And so to some extent, are you retreating from that if you're... No, I, I, I think you're sort of embracing trans transactions as its advantages, right? I mean, it's efficient. In the short term, you get what you want. But I think I think it's it's a design flaw. It took us like 5,000 years to put wheels on bags. So, you know, it's, it's a great idea. It took us a long time. So I think it's about elevating transactions into relationships. It's about throwing a better party. So it's like, yeah, I could, if, if I, I, I remember I was at Stanford uh, giving a talk one time and somebody asked a, a question around this and I said, okay, imagine you have two toll booth lanes, right? This is pre-pandemic where you had toll booth attendance. Um, and in one lane, everyone decides to pay forward for the car after them. And in one lane, everyone is just transacting and paying for their own car. Which lane do you want to be in? Right. And it's very clear that like, and I, I, I don't know if you've done this. I've done this. You pay toll for the car behind you. And first of all, the flight, the, the attendant behind the booth itself is like, they're to it totally makes their day. And then the person behind you, you know, if they're aggressive, they'll be like following you, honking and like thanking you. But think of what happens on their dining table that day. They don't know you. You're not, you know, you're not following each other on Twitter or friends on Instagram or whatever. But they're going to be like, guess what happened today, honey? Like, well, there's always the uh, strange turn of, of kismet, too, that can't be predicted. I know someone who tried that once, and it turned out he had paid for a woman who assumed that he was coming on to her and paid for that reason. <laughs> and she unrolled her window and said, I, I, I'm in a relationship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's get Reed involved in this. Is Newpun aware of Gratitude Revealed, the film and project by Louis Schwartzberg? Thanks for the question, Reed. Uh, yeah, yeah. There, there's been a lot of research around it. I think uh, our our group has been connected uh, with uh, Louisa and, and their team. I think they were trying to do, like, one of the things we do is a 21-day gratitude challenge. Uh, we'll do 21-day, uh, you know, kindness challenge and things of that sort. And it's amazing how communal, like, so we can say, I want to do an act of kindness or an act of gratitude. Uh, but then we'll lose steam, right, by day three or day four. But if we're all doing it together and we're all sharing stories, then on day four, when I feel like quitting, I read one of Michael's stories and I'm like, that was amazing. 
And okay, I, I'm going to do it. And then day, you know, day seven, you might be feeling like, you know, okay, I got too many other things going on. You read one of my stories and it encourages you. So I think in that way, uh, you can really start to build a collective around some of these values. And I think that's the, that's the greatest possibility that the internet. I, I think really like that us. idea too, of using stories. Uh, it's very appealing. But you know, um, you're talking also about a kind of motiveless, selfless goodness, generosity, kindness, and compassion and gratitude. Um, what do we do with it? As a literature professor, I was always struck by a phrase of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, a famous British poet, who talked about a phenomenon he called motiveless malignity, like in Iago, the character in Othello, Shakespeare's Othello, motiveless malignity, or a number of examples in literature and in life where people just do things, you know, like there's a rattlesnake and the rattlesnake can bite you and it has venom in it. There's that out in the world we live in. How does that fit into your schema? Motiveless goodness, we're all for, we all champion any, you know, kind-hearted, compassionate, gratitude-filled person. But there is a lot of motiveless malignity out there. Yeah, yeah, there there is. And I think, I think it's actually, it's an invitation for us to deepen our motives of why we practice compassion in the first place, right? So I think there was one of my friends works uh, with prisoners, and at some point they were doing the circle, and it was very powerful. These were all people who were in for life, and they made a chart, and they said, how many, uh, how many uh, years have you been here? And, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 14 years, they made a list and they added it up, and they said, how long was your moment of rage? And everyone, like, you know, a few minutes, like, so for a collective few hours of rage, they had spent, like, you know, decades and decades in, in prison. And it was a very powerful circle. And in that circle, one of, uh, w one of the members raises his hand and he says, you know, I, I want to share something. He says, I think hurt people hurt people. And everyone reflected on that. And at some point, somebody else raises their hand and says, you know, I want to build on that. And he says, healed people heal people. That you can multiply this chain of hurt begetting more hurt. And it, or if you find the bigness in your heart, then to, to actually go in, to confront that and to respond it not with the toolkit of hurt, but with the toolkit of love. And if you look at people like Gandhi, like this was the basis of his whole movement, is to say that even if you're violent, I'm gonna respond with nonviolence. He inspired a whole nation to do this. Um, and, and I think there's something there uh, for all of us to explore. So it's not that this doesn't exist in the world, but it is that we actually have this capacity to respond, as Viktor Frankl would say, that even in these dire circumstances where we had nothing, where even our lives were in, in jeopardy, people were responding with generosity because that was who they were. And so I think we have this potential. Um, so it's, it's all these forces are definitely there in the world, but so are the forces of, of good and compassion and a big heart. I've always been an admirer of Gandhi's as well as of Viktor Frankl. And... Um Yet, it's funny that recently I read a kind of an attack on Viktor Frankl in a magazine called Tablet, which tried to bring him down to a more human level of making mistakes and doing things that were uh, out of self-interest. And you read these stories about Gandhi, you know, uh, testing his uh, erotic arousal nature by lying naked next to women and making sure that he doesn't touch them and so forth. In other words, the humanity, I was even thinking of Mother Teresa and how she was attacked by may he rest in peace, Christopher Hitchens, um, they all have their mortal sides. Uh, you know, uh, Martin Luther King, who tremendously admired, you know, uh, was being spied upon and had very mortal sides in terms of going, uh, being unfaithful and all that sort of thing. So uh, how does that figure into the sense of, I mean, we, we look to those figures for examples and we look to them for inspiration and so forth. But they're human, yeah, and they have all the human mortal weaknesses that the rest of us have, and need to. We need to see that, and yet we also need to feel gratitude for the contributions that they made. I mean, uh, Cesar Chavez, one of my first interviews. You know, I had tremendous. I felt like I was 
with a saint than I probably was. You know, I beatified him. And then I learned things that didn't necessarily weren't consonant with that beatification. That's the paradigm of mortality in many ways, and of even the great the greatest people that we breathe and walk among. Um, so does that diminish our gratitude? Does that affect our gratitude, the, the extraordinary accomplishments that these people made? So I, I think we lived previously, in the previous generation, we lived in a one-to-many era where you had the sage on the stage, and I think we sort of, in an approximate way, we clubbed everything onto them, we projected perfection onto them. And I think now we live in a many-to-many era. Right. So you and, and so the idea of a hero, idea of a leader, I, even in the corporate world, I think the corporate world is seeing changes in, in that in, in that realm, even in terms of technologies that we are seeing. You know, it starts with like instead of having a billboard and doing a catch all for everybody on the freeway. Now you have, you know, contextualized AdWords. And so I sense that we will now we are now moving in an era of many to many heroes and not just the top down right and so i sense that in the so there's this transitional phase where you look at people and you say wow they had a lot of good and there were a lot of sides to them that i can't relate to maybe i'm very strongly opposed to and you kind of have to build a relationship with with that whole package but i think underneath it we you you look at that and you say well with all the good like what were the principles that they were pursuing that's a good way to look at it. Look at it in terms of principles. Yeah. And also And how are those principles relevant and how can I be creative yeah. in circulating those principles here and now? But there's also the idea of unsung heroism, you know, yeah. the, the the people, the caretakers and the people who give so much of themselves and there brings us right back to gratitude. These are the people that we maybe sometimes don't shine enough of the light of gratitude upon. I, I, I tell you, we had a we, we did a 21-day interfaith compassion challenge recently with people from 84 countries. It was remarkable. And on the closing call, uh, there was this woman named Sharon, uh, and she shares, and she says, I've done this whole challenge on my hospital bed. I'm quadriplegic. And she describes her, you know, she she's very grateful for this experience. And she said, I started... Uh, experiencing uh, an awakening of compassion in myself, and then I wanted to express it to those around me. And and she says, but then I realized that I actually can start even closer home than my own nursing home. Um, and and she says, I decided to start with myself. So she says, once a month, I order something on Amazon. I get to do it. Now she lives on. Uh, she has one bag of possessions. She doesn't have too much. She doesn't have her limbs. She was moved three times in one of the weeks during uh, the hurricane in, in Florida because she lives in Florida. And she says, I decided that once a month I order something on Amazon and it's either like a soap or a pen or something. And I decided, you know, I'm going to check that box that says it's a gift. And I'm going to send a love note to myself. And wow, in a way it broke my heart. But in a way, I realize that's the times that we're in, that we have, you know, internalized so much of the external polarization in our own self that we start to judge our own selves. We're so unkind to ourselves, And when we do that with ourselves, it's very hard to even do that in small ways outside. So I, I, I think there's something to uh, being gentle and kind to yourself extending that out organically to those around you that you feel moved to do that to. And then over time, you know, uh, getting more and more courageous the way maybe someone like Gandhi would do. Um, but I think I, I think allowing that flow, I think, is a very beautiful and a sacred process. Um, I have a psychiatrist friend who has a good deal of wisdom who says, I have patients who are very gentle and kind to other people, but terrible to themselves, you know, I mean, in terms of the harsh judgments that they have about themselves, the uh, overcritical nature of assessing their lack of value when they have real value and all of those kinds of things. 
Let me bring Chris Clark on board here from Tempe, Arizona. He says, be generous. This principle, which I try to live by, helps me avoid internal dithering over judgments about who deserves my generosity. The world deserves generosity. <laughs> yeah. Is this consistent with your position? Absolutely. I think you should give like the way a, a, a rose gives its scent. You know, Rose is not saying, oh, I like Michael more than Nipun, so let me like, you know, share my scent a little bit, uh, a, a little bit more over there. No, you give because it's... You're much more likable, though. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, but you know, this this notion of kingly giving, right, that when you go to a king's, uh, I, I forget who, somebody had this really nice framing of uh, beggarly giving, neighborly giving, and kingly giving. Beggarly giving is like, oh, I kind of have to, and you're doing all these things. Um, neighborly is like, okay, I'm giving to you because maybe I'll need your help later in the future, you know. And kingly giving is, man, you've come to a king's doorstep, and if you do, you are going to receive because, not whether you need it or not, but because that's in the nature of the king to be give, giving. So I, I really like that notion of like, you know, and sometimes we all get transactional even in our giving, but man, like just drop all that. You don't know who's struggling. You don't know. Everyone's kind of fighting their their own fight. Like, and if we can just drop all that and just be unconditionally kingly, practicing kingly giving, I think it's an incredibly powerful practice. Don't you, haven't you found through the years of your work, a lot of people give out of guilt? They do. Yeah. Is that a good thing, bad thing, indifferent? How do you feel? I, about I mean, that? I, th I think that evokes at best a sympathy, uh, kind of, you know, on our sympathy, empathy, compassion spectrum, because then you start to feel like I have and you don't have, and I should be giving more. Um, and, but I, I think a lot of people give out of guilt. A lot of people can also give out of a sense of uh, a peer pressure. Right, everyone's giving, so I kind of want to give, you know. Or some people can give out of a reputational framework uh, that, oh, if I give, I will be seen as like, you know, holier than thou, or maybe I'll get more status in society. All that I think is there, uh, but I think it's it's about throwing a better party again. Like I think experiment and see if an unconditional way of giving actually is a better party for you, for your own inner self, for your relationships around you, and for the world at large. And in my experience, I've seen that that's absolute. doesn't mean I can do it all the time, uh, but even if I try and fail, um, I think there's there's a lot more meaning there than if I were to give out of you know peer pressure or guilt or uh, you know uh, scoring one or ego or ego yeah. yeah I mean a lot of people do give out of ego um, um, Robert Shoji Los Angeles what is your guest currently working on to feel better about his own life. <laughs> Well, for one, I'm returning back. I I, I just uh, went to the my first international trip was just two weeks ago, uh, so I'm returning back to a high dimensional reality again. Um, I'm leaving for Japan in a couple days, and then I'm going to be in India for two months. Um, so I think these are all in person things. You doing the evangelical thing in Japan? <laughs> No, I'm not doing that. I just doing community events there. Uh, there's some really great friends uh, that are doing fantastic things, and I think there's a global network of people that are saying that that let's innovate, let's design new systems, let's move from transaction to relationship to uh, transformation. You know, and and I think there's uh, it's a matter of um, maybe just being creative and curious. Uh, you just were to use the word I want to key in on because you write a lot about transformation. You've talked a lot about transformation through internal change and through you even speak about the stillness and some of these things you know in many people's minds border on more buddhistic ideas or eastern philosophy and so forth but you really do i think try to teach and enlighten people about the possibility of being transformed gratitude can transform absolutely right yeah and i think there's one approach of transformation which is very factory like i think we we kind of turn everything into a factory like model you start here apply this recipe scale it up and by the end you have you know this product and i think there's a lot of things that are more gardening like 
where you do a little bit and you have you do your effort, but then it also requires the grace of the sun and the wind and the water and the nutrients in the, in the soil. And so I think transformation is like that. So if we actually create a, a web of deep relationships, now I'm not talking just Facebook friendships, right? I'm talking about deep, a web of deep ties. If you actually have that web, then in that web, transformation arises. So it's not predictable, it's emergent. And I think there's something to that to learning first, I think, as a culture and as as systems designers to actually understand the depth of ties, not just the quantity of ties, but the quality, then to trust in emergence and then to know the to draw the through line between relationships to trust to, you know, transformation. So I think transformation arises organically, inner transformation particularly, arises organically. Like we tend to put it all on the shoulders of the ego, right? You read a book and you say, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna change my habits. But there are so many patterns in our psyche that can't be changed of where the force of our will, singular will is not sufficient. Patterns and habits, really. In many instances, I, I love. I always like what Beckett said: "Habit is the great deadener." And it's funny when you're talking about Facebook friends. It reminded me of that cartoon which you may have seen, where somebody I, I don't understand. I have thousands of Facebook friends. He's gone to give a speech, and there's nobody there. <laughs> um, and yet, the notion is somehow that these are relationships. That this is connectedness. Um, that's why I was asking you before about. Uh, the internet and the role that this has in terms of extending generosity or gratitude and so forth. It's, um, it's something that has to be experienced, I think, much more authentically than just online. Um, there's my little... <laughs> like, for the day. Well, you you and the you know Buddha had something really nice to say about this too. He said, on this very, very long path, uh, the the thing that you need most is noble friends. And noble friends is very different than, so these are not like, you know, your online friendships. These are not even offline friendships where you're like, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, and we're so tight and we go to movies together. These are people who are actually serving others together, growing together, uh, learning to be self more selfless together, playing a more infinite game and helping each other do that. Like that kind of noble kinship, according to the Buddha, is like the most, in, you know, most important resource. Well, as long as you mention the Buddha, didn't he also have a little parable about going out when he was seeking alms and, and food from people and somebody put something in his alms that really was inedible, but he felt it was given out of generosity, so therefore he should eat it. I think a lot of people would have a trouble <laughs> with that kind of concept. I mean, you could be grateful for any kind of donation. And in fact, some of your operations were all donation-based, right? Yeah, all of them, uh, yeah. You weren't out there knocking on doors, though. and We, we didn't even knock on doors, no. no. Yeah, I mean, for us, the process was, if you give enough, then you have these deep relationships. And if you have enough deep relationships, then someone's cup of gratitude is going to overflow somewhere somehow, and you trust in that emergent process. But you can hear people often saying, is that all he was willing or she was willing to give, you know, to this great cause? They went to a, a big dinner and, you know, they met celebrities or whatever, and they wrote a check, and the check was, you know, by whatever standards, much too low. Yeah. It's a, you know, and how do you inspire people to be more generous, you know, and and, and that's a big question. And again, I or think... Or to feel more gratitude. For yeah. That. And and I think there's, uh, there's a factory solution that we're all going for. You know, I, I think Time Magazine at one point had this cover which said, you know, is there a compassion pill? Because they were, they were studying oxytocin and they sprayed oxytocin in a room and they asked everybody for money. And uh, so the pre and the post, you know, initially people gave X amount. And once they sprayed oxytocin, like 90% increase, you know? So they're like, this is it. This is a compassion pill. And I think that's, that's what we want, right? We want a pill, but I think transformation and... And inner, you know, and this growth of compassion, of gratitude, uh, is happens in a gardening way. That yes, there is some effort, but there's also a lot of grace of factors that are perhaps even unknowable. Um, and so, how do you hold both of those together, uh, you know, with with diligence and keep at it and wait until 
uh, conditions ripen for that for that growth. And I think that takes so that's also at the dining table on, on at you know Christmas or Thanksgiving where like or anywhere where you're like oh this person you know I can't stand them or I don't want to be with them or I want to draw a very hard boundary here to perhaps soften our gaze um, and 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 you know draw draw a bigger circle. Sage advice, hard to follow for many people, very difficult, including me. <laughs> yeah, and and likewise. Yo también. Um, as Colin says, regarding the Karma Kitchen concept, can it apply to the global economy? Yeah, yeah. Can you actually uh, move from transaction to relationships? Right. I mean, Karma Kitchen model is is, is sort of uh, is everyone paying forward? Um, I would say that can you create a strong context? Um, if you just had a buffet line and said everyone just pay for yourself, you wouldn't make your costs. But if you have a context where the greeter is a volunteer, where all the servers in a restaurant are volunteers, where the dishwasher is a volunteer, where you sit down and under your table there's a nice quote and there's a game that connects you to the, while you're waiting for your food, connects you to the previous guest, connects you to this guest. I think if you can create that kind of context, then a gift culture can emerge. Then a culture of, of much deeper connection, even if it's not direct, uh, can emerge. So. Yes. Do I think the whole world can be like that? I think it can. I, but I, I don't really know how the whole world would be like that. But do I think uh, I do I think we can do more karma kitchens in so many different settings? Do I think we can move away from transaction in uh, within relationships uh, that we have, even in the corporate world, even in the government world, even in with strangers on the street, society at large? Absolutely. Like, can we do more of it? Yeah. And I think as we do, maybe a new path will emerge collectively. This is all very Emersonian to me, you know, as a, huh. uh, you know, it, it ties in with a lot of different philosophies, but I come back to some of the great American philosophers and I think about how Emerson spoke of spreading the wealth in the way that you're talking about, just out of goodness and transcendence and, and kind heartedness. Um, I think we have time for maybe a few more questions. Uh, let's let's take them. This is from Reed who says, I want to help inform my neighbors about the importance of certain practices that benefit the planet and the climate, but my suggestions are taken as judgments. Can Nupun help suggest a way to approach people in a way that doesn't put them on the defensive? Yeah. Well, very, thank you for that question. That's a really great question, yeah. Marie. Um, I, I like that a lot. One of my friends was actually, uh, and was, is, uh, very hardcore uh, as a climate activist, he, so much so that he left everything and he's a farmer and living off the land, like doing remarkable things in a singular way. But he had a question. He, he was talking to this monk one time and he goes up and he had a very uh, interesting question. He says, you know, I have all these great ideas. This was probably about 15 years ago before climate was such an emergency even. He says, I have all these great ideas, you know, and I tell people, but nobody listens. What advice do you have for me? You know, <laughs> and I think this is something we can all relate to. We all think our ideas are great and wonderful, and 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 many times people will listen, but many times many others won't. They'll critique it, they'll judge it, um, and or they'll even some, be adverse and hostile. Well, yeah, worse. I was just going to say they could even have a worse yeah. reaction. And this monk had a very beautiful, simple advice. He says, "Before you tell them, you have to make them friends first. And I think that's the work. So we take a shortcut, right? And we are saying, look, yeah, I, there's these problems in the world. I, I have the wisdom and the intellect to figure out the problem and the solution, and I'm now going to pass it on to you. No one likes that, right? But if you are actually a really close friend of mine, you have done so many acts of kindness for me. Uh, I have done acts of kindness for you. I have received acts of kindness from you. And when you have that thick sort of, it's not a dial-up connection, but a 5G connection, then it's like, even if I recommend a bad movie, you might be willing to not only listen to it, but it might even be willing to try and watch it, right? Um, and so I think that's the hard work and that's the onus on us that how do you not just look at the tip of the iceberg, but realize that 90% of the iceberg is actually below the surface. And I think we now have are paying perhaps for, you know, maybe generations, but at least decades of people ignoring all the things below the surface and hence we're not able to address the thing at the tip of the iceberg. So my advice to Marie, would be uh, go out and, uh, you know, build those bridges, not just at the level of like ideas and thoughts, 
but at the level of genuine love, like do an act of kindness for your neighbor. And once you do that, um, you'd be amazed how far, uh, once you build that bridge, you'd be amazed how many things you can transport on that bridge. I keep thinking about Robert Frost, good fences make good neighbors. So, uh, I mean, you're talking about bridges. I'm thinking about fences. Um, you, you need both. I agree. I think you do need both. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. there's a lot of wisdom in what you say. If you win someone over, if you, they have in Hollywood this thing they call the Q quotient, you know, how much you're likable. And if people like you and if they see that you are well-intentioned and kind-hearted, it can make the world a difference. Yeah, and absolutely. And even if you have, uh, you know, you may have uh, have those boundaries, which you need. I mean, I think if you just talk about inclusion without boundaries, that's that's not really, uh, you know, that's somebody just who has an idea of inclusion. But so you do your healthy boundaries. In fact, there's research that people who are most compassionate have the have the most clearest boundaries. So you need those. But there's no reason why you can't have a door from your, you know, uh, from through your fence that when the conditions are ripe, you open the door and you are able to engage. Um, so I, th I think uh, to just not have these hard, fast, uh, th you know, uh, lines and balances between inclusion and boundaries, but to be more fluid and to err towards the side of of greater uh, connection and compassion. I think if we do that, we can build bridges and and uh, transport and surprise ourselves. I mean, I think I have, th that's one thing I have learned even from my limited experience in my own life, just being completely surprised by um, by acts of acts of unexpected kindness. You know, there was a guy who came in to fix our one of our windows, and he was short, and he needed a. He says, "Do you have a stool?" And I had one of those step stools because my wife is also short, and so he climbed up and and he says, "You know, I need to get myself one of these." And as he was leaving, I was like, "Take it. This is yours." And he was so moved, and, and he's like, "No, no, I can't take it." I was like, "Yeah, yeah, take it." And and he says, "No, no, I want my company to pay for it because you know you're 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 such a nice guy. I don't want, I want you to keep your stuff." And I, so here I was trying to be kind, and he's trying to be doubly kind to me, and he's saying, "No, no, no, it should be my company paying for it, not you." So I'll get it, I'll get it, I appreciate it. And, but regardless of, I still had my stool, and he still had it. You know, he was in the same condition he was in, but the bond. Of between us was so much greater. And I think we can, you know, we can really practice this all the time in unexpected ways. It's a good message, important message. We're going to have lunch uh, with a couple of other people. We'll see who takes the check. But in the meantime... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll pay forward for somebody else. <laughs> uh, it's, it's been a real delight, pleasure to talk to you and continue doing the work you're doing. You're reaching a lot of people and really making differences in people's lives. And that matters. Thank you, matter. thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be with you on Gray Matter with Michael Krasny and spread the word. Um, I'm not necessarily in favor of evangelicalism uh, when it comes to self-interest, but it's nice to let people know that we're out here and we're doing the kind of work we think is important and um, we will continue to do. GrayMatter.show is how you can find out more about us. It's very easy to do. I want to extend thanks to people behind the scenes here, Alex, Colin, uh, Shannon and Chad, these are invaluable people, and um, I am very grateful for the team that we have built and what we're doing. Uh, and uh, remind you, you can always let us know what you think about what you hear or what you'd like to hear in terms of the podcast we do. And uh, I want a special gratitude and thanks again to Nippon for joining us. So thank you, and have a happy and a bountiful Thanksgiving, a festive Thanksgiving, and I hope much joy. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.